0: Welcome to Sitting with Cece, the place to be for all discussions and conversations about isms and controversy, a podcast where you name it and we talk about it. Here on our podcast, we will create a safe space so we can have open and honest conversations and dialogue. We aim to educate you to increase your understanding and awareness. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Celia McIntosh nurse practitioner, educator, and advocate. Thanks for joining me for this episode, the third episode of Sitting with Cece. This podcast will feature conversations about all things ism and controversy. This podcast aims to create a space where people can talk openly and honestly about issues so we can get to the heart of the matter. Today, I'm sitting down with Luticia Andre Doucette. She graduated from RIT, with a degree of bioinformatics where she developed protein surface prediction Mm -hmm. algorithms. After graduating, she was a fellow at the University of Rochester, where she worked in a genomics lab that focused on analyzing the venom of parasitic wasps to develop new drug therapies for various diseases. In 2017, she authored a report on wage disparities across race, gender, and disabilities in Rochester and Moreau County, in conjunction with the Rochester Monroe Anti-Poverty Initiative, and in 2018 authored a follow-up report on Employment Barriers for Disabled People in Rochester and Monroe County. She is a graduate of the Leadership and Education in the Neurodevelopment Disabilities Fellowship Program and an AUCD Emerging Leader. She is the owner of Catalyst Consulting, which helps organizations examine equity across race, gender, identity, and disability in policies, practices, procedures, and relationships. Lutetia seeks to inspire leaders and advocates working to bring justice to their organization, companies, and movement spaces. She also uses her disability justice expertise to transform her place of work. Her experience has given her a new perspective on leadership and a passion to make a change beyond the office. She recently left her full-time job at the city of Rochester to pursue her full-time leadership development business, Catalyst Consulting. So we are extremely glad to have you as our guest today, Letitia. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. The views and the opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not reflect the organizations we are affiliated with. Letitia, thank you so much for accepting the invitation to pull up a chair with me and join the podcast today. So excited to have you share your knowledge and expertise. You do so much for the Rochester community. Let's unpack some of the things that you do as it relates to disability justice. So I wanna talk a little bit about, tell the audience, what do you do? I know my bio is like, whoa, I've done a
1: lot. (laughs) (laughs) So right now my focus is on helping leaders understand how to be better leaders and find that inner voice. And, you know, provide support. So we have a lot of folk who are trying to do equity work or you're in the disability field and you're seeing a lot of stuff that's happening and you need a support system to go to someone who is going to be able to kind of not just only listen, but help guide you in your leadership journey. So I'm really excited about doing that work as well as helping organizations who are trying to kind of rethink themselves, right? And their ethos. We have a lot of folks saying they want to have equity lenses or anti-racist lenses, however you wanna phrase it. And, you know, they don't know what to do. And so I'm here to help them and provide, you know, a framework that they can build upon. And a lot of this I say though, starts with you right the first system that has to change is you you can say that you want change but change is actually very difficult even on the personal level and a lot of the time that i see is that inequities etc really start with people making either poor decisions or not wanting to understand how they put their ish into the space Mm -hmm. and you know whether you be a black person with your own internalized racial oppression, right? And enacting that on other black folk within, you know, the workplace or your personal lives, or it's white folk who don't want to understand how the subtle ways in which racism enacts and how they can perpetuate that in the office or on the people that
0: they say that they want to help serve, but yet they're doing a disservice to them. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And have you noticed, especially during this time, especially 2020, going into 2021, have you noticed that there's been an increase in the need for this work that you're doing?
1: There's definitely been an increase. I think last year, having all of the protests, et cetera, as well as, you know, recently people are seeing what is going on with the insurrection, et cetera, and needing to put that in a context that is actually understandable, right? That the blame doesn't lie at the feet of one person, but it is the end result of a whole long history of decisions made by multiple types of people, right? Mm -hmm. And really, I think there are some who are willing to see themselves differently. And there are some who say that, but then, you know, I might not be kind of the like their flavor of how to get there.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not for everyone, which is okay. And, and that's the, like you said, that's perfectly okay. But the work that you're doing is extremely important. Can you talk a little bit, tell the audience a little bit, what is disability justice?
1: So disability justice is a set of 10 guiding principles that were developed by Black disabled queer individuals. And so what was happening, you know, in the early days of the Americans with Disabilities Act was what is called the Disability Rights Movement, which meant that you could gain access through a rights-based strategy, so with litigation, etc. cetera. However, you know, we know that the legal system is not a just system and that it is inherently racist, as well as classes, etc. So a rights-based strategy that relies on litigation isn't really fit for all types of people, for all situations. So the disability justice movement tried to see itself as something broader than that. How do we actually make community change in order to create an equitable and just society?
0: And have there been any uh, other initiatives in the community to help improve um, that community space in terms of um, the work you're talking about, disability justice?
1: So in Rochester, unfortunately, there's only a handful of folk who are kind of trying to push for more disability justice. I think there's a lot of folk who think that having like an interpreter at the protest is like this revolutionary thing. When it's not, it's like a bare minimum standard, right? Whether it's the law or not, right? It's just the right thing to do. And so how do we move from, you know, just doing a bare minimum standard to actually incorporating all these principles that were developed by this group called Sins Invalid? And, you know, in Rochester, it's kind of slow to
0: adopt. You mentioned one of the gaps being the protest specifically, and, you know, having it interpreted there. Are there some other gaps that you can, that you've identified that individuals need to know or do better with specifically when it comes to disability justice?
1: I think, you know, a lot of the time we have folk who we want to create a committee, right? And then we say, we need a study, and then we need a study of the study so that the committee can then decide what else is going to happen. And then, then give us more dollars, right? Instead of actually getting to the work. And so as far as disability justice goes, we need to address the inherent racism in the disability kind of organizations, et cetera. Here in Rochester, they're predominantly white, right? And they don't have black and brown people in leadership positions. They certainly don't have disabled people in leadership positions. And even if they are a disability led organization, it's very white centric. So I think a lot of it is first address why that is and start changing it, but also really start looking at the whole social justice movement in Rochester in and of itself and why it is still so very exclusive for disabled individuals.
0: Yeah, I've noticed that oftentimes when people talk about social justice movement, Disability rights do not get talked about often. So I've noticed that just in my own work and really trying to make sure I'm, you know, looking at all areas that can be impacted um, by lack of, you know, looking through a social justice lens or equity lens. So tell me a little bit more about, you've talked a lot about why it's important. Can you just speak to that a little bit more? Why is the work that you're doing so significant, so important, so the audience gets it?
1: So Catalyst Consulting is the only equity consulting firm in all of Western New York that leads with disability justice principles. And even in my work at the city, when we were funded the grant from the National League of Cities, I was the only visibly disabled queer Black person leading an equity initiative in that whole entire cohort. And oftentimes an equity work, disability is put off to the side and it's only seen as accessibility, like ADA compliance, and not like how are we making this an equitable society for those who are most impacted. So one of the disability justice principles is leadership of the most impacted. So if we start there, who is the most marginalized and try to build based off of what their needs are, then everyone else can follow. But that's usually not what happens. It's we do these things over here and then, oh, we have
0: to retrofit it for those who are disabled. You mentioned, it sounds like you, I've heard you say center, we should be centering disability justice. Can you talk a little bit about about what that means? So I feel like these 10
1: principles and the one that I really gravitate to most, or at least two of them, it's cross movement solidarity and recognizing wholeness. And when we think about, you know, equity, that's really what we're trying to get to is recognizing that people are whole people with pasts, presents, and futures. And if we are going to create a world and society that is truly just, if you're missing a component and a whole group of people, right, then what are we actually doing? So that's like the first thing that I think of. I also think of when we talk about what is liberation, and I'm thinking of recently was an ACON building like this massive city in like Ghana or whatever. And I said, 10 bucks is not going to be inclusive or accessible to disabled people. So if your future and your liberation doesn't include me, is it actually really liberation?
0: Right and and definitely noticing that a lot with many organizations that it's an afterthought. Oftentimes like I said the focus is okay even on black and brown but then it's like okay the next level of you know like you said being inclusive of everyone oftentimes if you're not at the table they're not thinking about you you're not being considered those you know thoughts of you know language access and inclusivity in terms of being able to access some of these spaces are not even you know, talked about, or you're, you're just not a part of that. So I've noticed that quite often. So yeah, we definitely need to do better on that. So when, you, when you're thinking about that, what would make that better in terms of policies and recommendations? When it comes to policies and recommendations, do you feel like they improve disability justice or do you think they cause harm? I was looking at your, because you're a part of the In The Movement Project, and one of your quotes in that, in your chat book said, our trauma, our joy. So I have to wonder, you know, can we talk a little bit about, you know, what are these policies and recommendations doing? Are they improving disability justice or are they just causing harm?
1: Well, they're definitely causing harm. I think one of the biggest thing is it's on the table right now is having mental health professionals responding to, you know, people in mental crisis, Right without recognizing that the mental health system is a carceral system, same with the social work system. And so, and the deep racism and ableism within those systems, right? And so we can't shuffle one carceral system for another and think that, oh, this is what's going to fix the problem. When I think about why people are mentally ill, a lot of that has to, come from and does come from systemic inequities, right? And so if the community is not healthy, right? And we're saying that the burden of being fixed needs to be on the individual and we ship them off, right? To a hospital or other institution. And say you're the one that needs to be helped rather than thinking about what is a good community response to people in mental health crisis. Would there be mental health crisis if the community itself actually understood and accepted and was capable of handling those who are mentally ill? And then I always have to ask myself, well, what does mental illness even mean? Right, because there's been a few studies right now that came out, one being that depression is just a response to trauma and a way to protect oneself, right? And so what would it look like if trauma wasn't there? If we know that there are Mm -hmm. certain mental illnesses like multiple personality disorder in which the brain splits itself in order to protect itself from the trauma, right? Well, what would it look like if we had healthy communities where that trauma never happened in the first place? And so Mm -hmm. from a disability justice perspective, It is about fixing the root cause of the problem. And so what does that then look like? And then how do we build from there? And instead of saying, you know, we'll just add mental health professionals. Well, that's okay, but that doesn't really get to the deeper cause.
0: Yeah, I agree. And that's, that's essentially why we kind of started this platform to talk about the isms, the classism, the racism, the sexism, because all of those things are foundational to abuse and trauma, as you stated before. So with that being said, you know, with 2020 was just, you know, an unprecedented year. And I wanted to know how, as you speak about trauma, how has COVID-19 impacted disabled students or employees in the workplace?
1: So when I think about what happened in the, in the before times, in the before times, mm-hmm. there was these things or there still are these things because of the Americans with Disabilities Act called reasonable accommodations that you could get in order to work. You know, I need these different things on the job in order to be able to do my job. And so 70 percent of those reasonable accommodations for remote work in the before times that went into the court were found in favor of the employer. So they were denied. And then COVID-19 happens. And then magically, all these employers are like, we can do remote work. All of these universities were in the before times. There was lawsuits and complaints etc from students who could not get remote access to their classes and professors being denigrating and just highly toxic and abusive magically right oh everyone is switching to remote work and there were so many complaints from disabled folk especially disabled students saying like I quit school a month prior because, they were harassing me and dragging their feet and trying to get me the accommodation of remote classwork. So imagine having to quit school, feeling as if you were nothing, right? And being denigrated and degraded only to find that exact same institution was able to make it happen with ease because of what? Non-disabled people are now having to work from home. And so, that has been just terrible, frustrating, you know, anger-inducing, rage-inducing for so many disabled folk. And even thinking about how the narrative around COVID, where once they figured out it was like Black and disabled people who were going to be most impacted, it's like, oh, well, we're not going to do much of anything. And seeing so many people trying to rush to be entertained and, you know, let's go out drinking, let's do this and that, knowing that those who are dying, the majority of those who are dying of COVID are the quote unquote vulnerable, right? And you're excited and you're, I just need to get back to normal, but normal for whom? Because normal wasn't good mm-hmm. for disabled people. And then mm-hmm. on top of that, you have a lot of folks saying that we need to protect those who are disabled, etc. But the death rates from the flu, the majority of those were disabled, vulnerable individuals, right? And nobody really cared about masking. Nobody really cared about, you know, changing work environments, et cetera. And so if you didn't care, you know, two months prior to COVID, you know, because it was flu season, Right. What does it mean to now have you say, like, we have to mask and we have to protect those who are in our circle? So I think there is a lot of hypocrisy on multiple sides that still hasn't really been addressed, as well as what does it look like moving forward? Because social isolation isn't new for disabled people and neither is quarantining for many disabled people. And so what does that look like moving forward now that we've got all this virtual this and that and, and all these different accommodations that aren't really accommodations anymore? What does that then look like for disabled people and the rest of this world? You know, as we continue to deal with COVID.
0: And it just sends a message to individuals that are disabled that, you know, in a sense, others them and just makes them feel more invisible or just sends a message saying, you know, like society doesn't really care for you, which is essentially what I'm hearing from you. You know, you couldn't make these accommodations before, but suddenly, you know, suddenly, suddenly it's the right thing to do, which is not the right message. And we definitely need to do better in these organizations. So I'd be interested to see how things will change going forward. So what are some of the financial barriers? I can imagine that there's a lot of financial barriers that contribute to poverty in individuals with disabilities. Can you speak to that? So
1: the biggest barriers are written in the policy, right? So if you're someone who is on supplemental security income, which is SSI, you're only allowed to receive $800 a month now. I know a lot of folks were up in arms about that $600 stimulus check. Imagine only being able to live on $800 a month, right? That is hugely restrictive. And that dollar amount hasn't really changed that much, even though these standards were, you know, set in like the 50s or 60s and some stuff like that. So it's just like, how do we Even just that, and that eight hundred dollars a month is based off of whether you have a mobility disability. So different disabilities get different dollar amounts. But even if we just raise that eight hundred dollars to maybe sixteen hundred dollars, right? That still, you know, sometimes barely doesn't even cover the rent. So now, what it is? What are you going to do, right? So we're co-signing disabled people automatically into poverty. The second thing is that Medicaid has, you know, asset limits, right? You can only have so much in the bank. It actually encourages, you know, frivolous spending and that sort of spend down that sometimes you have to do if you're over. the. In New York State, we have what is called the Medicaid Buy-In Program. And that program has an income threshold of $65,000, I believe, if you are a single person and like $85,000 if you are a married couple. Well, that actually isn't really realistic. Like say if I had a law degree and I wanted to work for a law firm and I was going to earn six figures, but I still needed aid care. Medicaid is the only insurance that's going to allow you to have aid care. Well, now if you're on the Medicaid buy-in program, if the income limit is 65000 Right. You just now have been disqualified from the very program that's supposed to help you. But you can't really pay out of pocket either, because let's say your aids cost seventy five thousand dollars a year. Right. But you're only making maybe one hundred thousand. Right. You're really putting someone backwards. Right. In a way that is extremely detrimental. Right. You're punishing them for needing the help that they need in order to live right and all of us need help but the only ones who get punished for that are disabled people so when the policies themselves are so restrictive right and aren't really realistic to what it is that is going on in real life then what are we actually doing and are we actually interested in even changing the needle you can't really think about getting a job if you know that your benefits, the ones that you absolutely need in order to even just get up and do everyday life, right? Some of these aides are doing, you know, bowel care, right? Helping you use the bathroom. That's huge. If you didn't have that, what are you going to do, right? So I think we really need to think about what that even means and even on the caregiver side we pay them so little and they're doing such hard work meaningful work right i wouldn't be here if it wasn't for some of the amazing aids that i had you know doing the literal dirty work to help me and they get paid you know pennies i think that is so wrong and just another way of putting people down and all of those aides, the majority of them are black and brown and immigrant people. Right. So it's just kind of going back to the same isms that we talked about classism, racism, you know, how we treat immigrants in this country is foul. Right. And some feel that they don't have a voice in order to speak up for change.
0: Yeah, definitely. So are there any policies that are currently that you're that's being proposed right now that you would find helpful at all? I reached <laughs> so that you've been following. none that I know of
1: for disabled folk. But I reached out to Sam Brooke. And asked to just give a presentation about these very things that I talked about, even from a New York state level, if we could just change even that income threshold for the Medicaid buy-in program, make that program easier to get into, it has a very low rate of entry because it's just so difficult. There's no separate form, you know. It's just you get the runaround. It's very, very difficult to get onto that program. So if we can make that program easier and increase those thresholds to something that's actually realistic, then we could get so much more people into at least employment and getting their lives back. If we in New York State, Mm -hmm. because we're one of those states that actually put into the social security system. So you get um, the federal amount and then the New York state amount on top of that. If we were able, if Cuomo is really serious about legalization of marijuana, Funneling those dollars into SSI to raise the dollar amount that people could get. So at least they're not cosigned into poverty. You ain't got to work, right? Because not work is not for everybody, but at least you shouldn't be cosigned into poverty just because of the basis of who you are and how your body functions in this world. So those are the things that I, I have wanted to talk to our state assembly folk with. And they seem receptive to that. So hopefully within the next few weeks, we can get something on the calendar. And I'm really, really excited about that.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Let me know how I can Thank help you. with any of that. So you welcome. One of the things that you mentioned, you know, because one of the things that i've been struggling with listening to over 2020 you know i've hearing a lot of people say you know oh we bootstrapped it why can't they just tie up their boots and you know if they work hard enough then they wouldn't be in some of those situations what would you say to people when you're talking about you know there are bar- serious barriers that co-sign you to poverty, like you mentioned, what would you say to some of these individuals that have this conversation? And I don't know if you're hearing that specific conversation, but I keep, it, it just seems like something I'm hearing in the community about, you know, you work hard enough, you can get whatever you want, you can get the picket fence and the dog and all these things, but that's not the case. So what would you say to those individuals or what insight would you give for individuals say
1: that's cute if you actually have shoelaces or could even put on your own shoes in the first place you know and so nobody gets where they are in life without help and anyone who says otherwise is a liar i don't care who you are right mm-hmm. even someone like jeff bezos had to have employees right you have to have investors you have to have advisors you have to have you know People pouring into you to get where you are. You know, as an entrepreneur, trying to do things on my own was like the dumbest thing ever. Like it, it doesn't really work, causes you a lot of stress and headache. And you have to put yourself around people who are going to pour into you and say, you know, you don't have to make those same mistakes. We can help. Right. But as a disabled person, I know very well that not all choices are good choices. And sometimes you're having to pick from the bad of the bad. And sometimes you have no choice. There, There is nothing. Right. And so for folk who don't understand what that's like, you know, try living on eight hundred dollars a month. Where are you going to live? How are you going to eat? How are you going to get around? You know, that was me living in HUD subsidized housing and not knowing if I was going to have a future. If it wasn't because of having people around me believing in me and helping me and supporting me, I wouldn't be where I am today. So I didn't get here by myself.
0: Yeah. I mean, I really like that analogy of Jeff Bezos and the employees and investors because oftentimes people get to where they're going on their and they forget about the people that helped them along the way and that's just a testament that we we need people no matter who we are so we shouldn't be in this kind of journey of life alone so thank you for that perspective one of the things that you mentioned i wanted you to talk about some of the employment barriers of if you can ex- if you can expand on that a little bit more that individuals, disabled individuals face.
1: So one big example was that this was done by Obama. He gave uh, student loan forgiveness for disabled individuals and he made this big speech saying that, hey, this is going to help disabled people get into work. You know, this is a good thing. But when I went to look at it, you could only earn a maximum of $16,000 a year for three years, and then your loans would be forgiven. $16,000 is extremely below the poverty guidelines, and you can't get a job at all on that kind of, like no job is gonna pay you that little money, right? So you're really being cosigned into poverty. And then it takes about a year for the paperwork to process. So for four years after you graduate from college, you have to be in abject poverty and somehow magically that helps you get a job, even though surveys and research has shown that that big of a gap in your employment record actually makes it harder for you to obtain employment. Right. So. That in itself, I was like, Obama, what you doing? Like, this is ridiculous. And so that's one of the things. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that many job descriptions have very ableist language in them. You know, must lift 35 pounds or has to stand all day. And nine times out of 10, that's actually not an essential function of the job, right? It should be, do you have the knowledge to do the job? So... Everything else is just negotiable, right? It's not really necessary. And so if you have that ableist language in your job description, disabled people are just gonna self-select. Well, I can't do that, so I can't apply to this job, right? And there's a lot of fear about disclosing your disability because Studies have shown that if people disclose right up front, their application is passed over. So even just getting into the job in and of itself is very, very difficult. Access to education is also something that's not great across the board. So depending on your type of disability, you know, you're not going to be educated. Whether you are in an urban environment, a suburban environment, or even a rural environment, the access to education is going to be vastly different, right? We see a lot of this in RCSD, where students with disabilities are just kind of pushed through the system and aren't graduating with a kind of competency that they need in order to even get a job or go to college if that's what they so desire. So there's a lot of barriers to entry just depending upon like who you are.
0: So those intersections are super, super critical, you know? Yeah. Can you speak a little bit to, I heard you bring up ableism a couple of times. Can we talk about the role ableism and racism play in disability justice?
1: So disability justice seeks to address those intersections in that the disability rights movement, like I said before, was a, is a very white centered movement. This is why we see all these disability organizations that are white led organizations, as well as strategies that, you know, white people can do really well, right? Litigation is like a thing, right, for white folk. And that's not true of those who are black and brown, right? So that is one way in which kind of racism kind of plays out within the disability world but ableism also plays its role right this is why we can have i think he's like a senator or whatever and he's in a wheelchair he's trash he's a racist um, and he's also you know just has no idea what disability is even though he's disabled because he's rich and white and disabled and said some problematic things and he's also lied about his past but nobody's gonna call him out on that right because they're afraid right oh my gosh you can't call out the disabled guy yeah you can't you know if, if he's wrong he's wrong right he's a human being like anybody else So a lot of times we see a lot of injustice that happens, but nobody is really paying attention to it because of ableist attitudes. It's not really that
0: important. So another question. So on that point, you wrote a 30-day guided journal for advocates and leaders to develop and hone their skills grounded in disability justice principles. What was the impetus behind that? So
1: I read... Skin, Tooth and Bone by and Ballad, And they're the uh, creators of the disability justice movement. And I thought it was just wonderful and amazing. And then I was thinking about some of the principles of Ma, the Unguzu Saba, as well as, you know, these principles, and they really did overlap. And I said, if I were have a framework of how I want to be as a Black, disabled, queer individual. It's the overlap of all these different principles. And then how do you actually apply those to your life? So that's why I created the 30-Day Guided Journal so that, you know, we can go through each day kind of is a, a prompt in and of itself to kind of talk about things in a way that maybe challenges you to think about yourselves in ways that you haven't done before, but also introducing those who are in the social justice movement who've never heard of the disability justice principles and like how it might
0: relate to things that are familiar to them. Awesome. I'm waiting to get mine, but I I know that's going to be really helpful. So one of the things I wanted to touch base on now, I know that you, we talked a lot about, you know, race and disability, but do you find some of these same challenges within the black and brown community? of how, you know, like some misconceptions of disabled individuals. Yeah, definitely.
1: And I think that comes from, you know, slavery in and of itself. So if you think about the reason why enslaved people were quote unquote, set free, right? Was based on the value of labor that they provided to the slave master. But if you were disabled, you had no real value, right? You couldn't work. And so either you had family members, friends, et cetera, kind of like abscond with you, they would just like take you or you were just co to stay on the plantation and with your master until you die. And so I think there is a lot of protectionism within the black community that I think stems from that, right? We have to protect uh, that individual. We have to do for that individual. And so oftentimes you get infantilized like treated like a child even well into adulthood right we also have this ingrained thing that doctors have all the knowledge and you know all the say right oh just do what the doctor says and so oftentimes we don't challenge the doctors and the doctors are giving their own very ableist kind of opinions etc and so we just kind of go along with that right There is also a higher rate of institutionalization of black and brown disabled individuals into nursing home settings. And I think a lot of that has to do with poverty, right? If you've got a doctor or this institution saying, well, we can give you three meals a day, we'll take care of them better than you can, you know, we'll provide for you, then of course, you're going to be able, you're going to say that, right? So we have to really think about the intersections of class, as well as poverty, right? Economics, all of these things come into play. But also, I think there's in the Black community, especially when it comes to mental health, oh, you just pray about it, right? And so Oftentimes, you don't get the help that you need when you need it and often get diagnosed later on in life, not just because of cultural attitudes, but because of racist attitudes as well. So mental health, disability, like Mm -hmm. autism presents differently in black and brown individuals than it does in
0: white individuals. So all of that kind of comes into play. Thank you for that. And one last question from me. What are some other misconceptions about people with disabilities? Oh, wow.
1: (laughs) I think the biggest thing, you know, I guess because we recorded before Valentine's Day, right, is that we can't be caregivers. We're always ones who have to be recipients of care, but that we can't care for others, that we can't parent that we can't be in romantic relationships, however you want to define them. And so a lot of that just, I know, particularly now in this time, so many people are talking about, you know, I'm a disabled parent. I am a cisgendered woman and I, you know, and all these things that people have been talking about on my Facebook page. You know, I know so many wonderful disabled parents. They gave birth to their kids, you know, you get a lot of weird questions of like, can you even have a kid? I was like, well, I had a car accident. My uterus didn't fly out the car, you know, still there. I have a zero. Personally, I just have a zero occupancy rate for my own uterus. You know, I ain't want nobody in there ever. But that's just my own personal choice. Mm-hmm. Right. But, you know, like <laughs> even just a simple thing of I know that there are folk, Whenever they hand me their baby, right, and let me hold their baby, that says a lot about them. Because I know so many people who just won't do that. Well, can you even do it? What if you hurt them? I'm like, what, what are you talking about? Like, I can hold a baby, help many babies, mm-hmm. and rightfully give them back when they cry. Yes. Yeah. So... <laughs> I'm with you on that. It was cute. But you know, like, let me hold your baby. Like, I can hold your kid. I can watch your kid. You know, I can take care of your child. I raised my younger siblings. They turned out great, (laughs) great human beings. You know, Mm -hmm. all these different things that I think people have these strange misconceptions and are not willing to confront that the problem is them. Right.
0: And want to put that on me. It's like, nah, Mm, I'm good. Yeah. Like, right. Yeah. Like don't project that onto me. So one of the other things that I I did want, so what would you like to leave the audience with, you know, in terms of the work you do, the work that you continue to do, how can the audience find you? Number one, how can get, get, can they get a hold of your book and what would you just like to, remind people about, give some takeaways. Well, first, let me thank audience.
1: you so much for having me be here. I think this is awesome. Uh, <laughs> glad we finally got to do this. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and, yes, you know, for definitely. the book, currently I have a bit.ly uh, link. So it's bit.ly B-I-T forward slash disability justice journal. And hopefully in the next couple of weeks, my website will be up. So you could either find me at LutetiaDoucette.com or Catalyst So I'm really, really excited about that. And thinking about, you know, overall, some of the takeaways is that we need to actually start seeing disabled people and acknowledging that we exist in this community and recognizing our own complicitness and ableism because everybody contributes ableism is the number one widely accepted form of discrimination in the world. So what does that mean? And how do you particularly change how you think, feel, and actually do
0: when it comes to disabled individuals? Awesome. Thank you. Maybe one final thing. What drives you to do the work that you do? I mean, and know you have to be passionate about it but just everything what drives you to continue to do everything I've
1: lost so many disabled friends particularly over the past couple of years and so and I've nearly lost my own life due to ableism and racism in the medical community and so I think like however much breath I have in me however long when I'm here on my earth I need to do my friends the good service of continuing the work that they had started, right? And hopefully finishing the work that they started because I don't want to be doing this for, I don't want to have these same conversations 10 years from now, right? We need some real, real change. And so that I think what drives me is just the only way that I know
0: how to honor their memory and their legacy. Well, with that, I want to say thank you, Letitia, for taking out your time, taking out time out of your busy schedule to come sit with me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please follow or subscribe. Please share with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. And feel free to leave a voicemail with questions or suggested topics for future podcast episodes. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at doc underscore mcintosh. So that's at doc underscore Macintosh. Thank you for pulling up a chair and listening to Sitting with Cece. We hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to rate and review the show wherever you access your podcast. Follow me on social media, share the episode. DM me with comments or leave a voicemail message with topic suggestions and questions for our next podcast. Remember, the views and opinions expressed during the show represent our guest and host alone. Until next time, bye.